When we sing that song, we're really declaring that God is the one who rules. God is the one who is in control. God is sovereign and wise and good, and we can trust him. And we've experienced that a lot together as a church family. So certainly this past week with VBS, again, praise God for what he did. Grateful for all that participated. We had just, everybody was involved in some way or another, it felt like. Uh, from, the, from the prepping, decorating, serving the kids, set up, tear down, etc. But there's another thing that was happening throughout uh, the time prior to VBS to prepare for it. And that was that there were several people uh, that were out there working on the Ed Wing. And there was a reason for that. We wanted Ed Wing ready prior to VBS. And Paul Delancey and an amazing team of people worked tirelessly almost around the clock. And I don't know if you've seen it, but folks, it looks good. It looks good. There's uh, now access to restrooms from the outside. There's um, restrooms connected to classrooms on the inside so that when kids are being cared for, you're not walking them as the volunteers to various places to use the restroom. It's all right there. Uh, but also, very importantly, we wanted it ready for VBS. Uh, and there, there are many areas of prayer. There were, were the counters going to make it in time. There was the height of the countertop. I was there talking to Paul one time. He's like, yeah, the inspector came by and he said that these counters are about, well, two inches too tall. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so, and he said, so what's the solution? And the guy's like, well, I can come back and we can just fine you until you shorten them or you can just shorten them. <laughs> so Paul's like, uh-huh. So what does he do? You know, they, they, you know him and, uh, okay, I'm looking at Tim Hasey. Tim's going to hit my guts. But Tim Hasey had a massive thing to do with that. Praise God for him as well. We've also got Scott Atkins who did all kinds of crazy stuff. And there were many other people who were there regularly, constantly, uh, to do this. But uh, God answered prayer. And, and here's the other thing. This is actually a prerequisite to uh, the Access for All project that, that we're embarking upon as well. Because, and if you haven't been with us, we are, we're making our campus more open uh, for folks who have limitations physically to get around. We want to be a church with doors that are wide open to everybody. And so as a part of that, it means that we're expanding. If you look at that window, there's the, the nursery wing. Well, we're going to be expanding that this way, taking out those restrooms, making it, putting an elevator in, all kinds of other stuff. So the point being, when those restrooms are not working, guess what? We're going to need those restrooms. <laughs> so this is just a part of the logistics for that. But very grateful for what God's done. And uh, yeah, when you get the chance, go ahead and walk by and look at the, the beautiful uh, kind of flowers laid out in the front and the new entryway for the new room one access. And, uh, and we'll enjoy that. I'm also really grateful for, uh, for those who've been preaching over the past couple weeks. So for Eric and for Andrew, uh, thank you for stepping in and uh, continuing through the, um, the book of Ezra. And, uh, you know, Janet and I and in the, in the, in Kiddos, we were, we were away down south, and, and I found myself actually where I often find myself when we're on vacation, that is on the beach. And beaches are good, people. Beaches are all right, you know? You kind of just like, you sit there. It's one of the one places I can actually get Janet to just sit down and not do anything, because going to the beach is doing something. Does that make sense? So we're sitting there, and I'm just kind of looking out at the waves, and we were, we were at a spot where there was like a surfing school going on, right? So these you know, kids are learning how to surf. And we're just kind of watching that. And as you look at the waves, I was just kind of thinking about things. And you, you kind of, as we've been talking through this idea of restoration from God and revival, 
right? Revival. And some writers have likened revival to a wave. It's like, you know, God's at work. God is taking his people. God's refreshing them. He's quickening them in terms of their sense of who he is. He's he's showing them uh, how to walk and how to live. And in a sense, people get caught up in that wave, so to speak, right? And they kind of ride that thing. And God's at work and, and moving, as I was watching that, I was thinking, though, you know, it's interesting, though, because these kids are all out here. What are they doing? They're learning how to catch that wave. And they're not just out there all of a sudden. I mean, I would need instruction big time. I was more of a boogie boarder, by the way. You might think, yeah, you're a wimp, Chris. Okay, fine. I'm a wimp. That's what I did. But the point is, you've got to learn. You've got to learn how to paddle. You've got to learn how to stand. You've got to learn how to take this thing. And, and in many ways, what we find here in Ezra is God taking us through what it means to actually recognize revival and be a part of, be caught up in that revival. Uh, because Ezra is, is written about, again, the exiles coming back from the Babylonian captivity. And if you've been with us at all, you'll recall that, that uh, this all started back in 587 BC when, when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom. And they destroyed the temple, and they took God's people captive. And so the book of Ezra begins about 50 years later, at about 538 B.C., after Persia defeats Babylon. And Cyrus, who had been prophesied, by the way, centuries before that he would say this, prophesied by name that he would say this, he sends the exiles back to rebuild the temple. And so these Jewish exiles come back into the land, and, and they, they, uh, they begin rebuilding the altar and, and they begin the process of temple restoration. But then in chapters 4 through 6, they encounter opposition. And so there's different political opposition. There's opposition from the people. They're trying to stop this work. And then by God's providence, as he leads and guides them, they find themselves able to complete the temple. And, and chapter 6 kind of just culminates in this beautiful celebration of the Passover. And, and there's joy because of the institutions and structures of worship that are, that are reinstituted for God's people. And so then Ezra 7 brings Ezra himself on the scene. And that's about 458 or so. And 80 years after that first group came back from exile. And, and, and with Ezra coming, we see that there's a pressing desire to walk with God. There's a desire to honor God in every facet of life. And we find that Ezra himself has set his heart to study God's law and to preach it and to live it out. And the people are receptive to this. And and there's a, a renewed vigor toward God. And then chapter eight comes. And Ezra brings back the, the gold and the silver utensils that are to be used in temple worship. And, and at this point, the, the, the worship of God and the institutions to do so have been reestablished in the land, and there is great rejoicing. And then what happens? Chapter 9 comes, and we find there's another form of opposition. But this form of opposition is different. It's not so much from the outside like previously. No, this opposition is actually from the inside, from within God's people. Because we find that the people have not remained distinct from the pagan nations around them. Instead, they've taken some of the daughters of the nations to be wives. And God himself warned them not to do that back in Deuteronomy 7. But they disobeyed God. They intermarried uh, with those nations. And there was a cause and effect relationship between those marriages and being pulled away from God. Being pulled into idolatry. And so now, 
they're faced with the potential of actually losing their distinctiveness as a nation. And there's big implications for that, even from, a, from the standpoint of, of salvation for all people of all time, because what was the promise to Abraham? Through you and your descendants, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. There's going to be redemption. There is going to be salvation that comes as a result of the people that come from your lineage. And so this very beautiful thing that God's provided is now, in many ways, on the verge, perhaps, of being wiped out, of being uh, distorted, of being diluted so much that that salvation would not be available. And so we find ourselves, after Ezra hears this, he, he confesses that sin. He, rep- he, he grieves over it deeply. He's convicted over it. The people uh, are watching him in his conviction. Then he has this massive prayer of confession in chapter 9. And that brings us to chapter 10. And so let's, uh, if you would, go ahead and, and stand as, and follow along as we read Ezra 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we, we ask that you would uh, be at work in this time that we gather, that you would cause in our own hearts there to be a recognition of, of what this restoration and revival that comes out of repentance, out of turning away from sin. And we as your people deeply need for you to work in our lives together in this way. We pray, Lord, that you would have... Um, your way with us, that you would cause us to hear and to see and to respond in ways that glorify you, that you would be at work and that there would be amongst us a people here set apart, not like the world around us, but utterly different because we are connected to you in Christ. We thank you for our Redeemer. We thank you for our King. We thank you that he is alive. We thank you for the hope that we have in the midst of all of the struggles that we face, especially those with sin, because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We praise you for him, and we ask that you would do mighty things in this time that we are gathered together. And we ask this in his mighty name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So one thing that we find here in this passage very clearly and and a key theme is real repentance awakens revival. Real repentance awakens revival. 
when we really turn away from the things that we're pursuing, when we really change course, that's what repentance means, right? We talked about that before. Uh, Repentance literally is I'm walking in this direction and then I'm going to say, nope, I'm turning around and I'm walking this other way. When that comes about, it's a part of what God uses in bringing about revival. But the question is, what does real repentance look like? How can I tell? How can I tell if I'm actually turning? It's, it's one thing to say, yeah, I repent. But it's another thing to actually do that. Repentance is not just a, a, a mental assent kind of a word. It's not the word where like, I'm kind of like, I think that's true. No, repentance means action. It means I'm going to walk, live, do differently than I was before. So what's real repentance look like? How can we tell? And so we're going we're gonna to be examining that. And, and the first thing we would find is this. Real repentance is sober. It's sober. It's something where you're, you're hit with it and you're going, whoa, what have I been doing? And, and there's a reason for that. And, and Andrew talked about this quite a bit last week. There's conviction. There's conviction over sin. That's what we saw in, in chapter 9. There's the realization, what I'm doing, the way I'm living, the, the way that I'm carrying out my life is not in light of who God is. And for us as New Testament believers, in some ways it's even more profound because unlike our Old Testament brothers and sisters, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? When you, when you come to Jesus, when you turn to him, and trust in him, his spirit takes up residence inside of you. And we're told uh, in the New Testament that we can grieve God's spirit. Who's, who's, we've been bought, purchased by. Who, who, his dwelling in us is, a, is in, in a sense a down payment of our inheritance. And yet, we can live our lives in such a way where we would grieve him. And so there's, there's conviction and then there's also Confession, and, and we find this continuing from chapter 9 into chapter 10 in these first few verses. Look at how Ezra is described. He's praying. He's making confession. He's weeping. He's prostrating himself. He's just lying on his face before the house of God. So they're at the temple. He is very grieved over sin. And... and uh, it's very fascinating because he's there before the people. He's grieved over their sin corporately. You'll notice there's a grief over sin. There isn't, oh, I don't know, a gossip over sin. Isn't that how we respond to sin corporately sometimes? We don't grieve over sin. We gossip about it. Did you hear that? Did you know that they're doing this? That's not the biblical response, brothers and sisters. We, when we hear about sin in our midst, we're to grieve. We're a family. We're together in that. There is a corporate nature of grieving over, over sin. We find the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Maybe you'll recall, we were, we were there not long ago. And there, there was a, 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 someone who had taken his father's wife. There was incest happening in the church at Corinth. And the church, rather than grieving together over that, as Paul said they should have done, and actually carrying out church discipline with this individual. Instead, they were just sort of sweeping it under the rug. Of course, they were probably talking about it because it was known. 
But now here, Ezra grieves. He grieves for the sin of God's people, and, and there's, there's a, this desire to, to just take that grief, that bitter weeping, and go before God and to express that sorrow. And that's what we need to be like as well, corporately and individually. And then there's the conviction of it. And, and this conviction comes in light of the, the, the truth that Ezra understood and saw God's holiness. We're told in the scriptures that God isn't just holy. God isn't just holy, holy. If you think of Isaiah's vision, what, is it, what do the angels declare to each other? That God is holy, holy, holy. That's, that's the, the threefold repetition in Hebrew that makes it emphatic. Above all things, God is holy. That means that God is pure. There's no sin in him. It also means that God is other than. He is not like us. He is not common. No, instead, he is the God who is above all things in perfect light. He's so holy, we're told, that if we were to try to enter into his presence without a covering, without the righteousness of Jesus, to enter into his presence would mean certain death for us. We would be incinerated in a moment. It's hard to even describe that. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, we were in science class, and we were talking about black holes. You're like thinking about black holes like black holes. Well, what are they? I don't know. There's so much gravity that light can't escape. And so, you know, as kids, we conjecture and we talk with the teacher. And What would it be like to encounter a black hole? And, uh, and the teacher said, well, if you were there somehow in space and you encountered it, your feet would hit the center of it before your head started to move. You're just like, wow, I, I don't even think that's true. I think about it later, I'm like, no, come on. You would just be so dead. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, how dead can you be? So dead. You'd just be dead. Like, gone. So, but entering God's presence without a covering is to meet utter incineration in a nanosecond. Because he is holy, holy, holy. That's why whenever someone saw God in the Old Testament, they're like, oh no, I'm going to die. No man can see God and live. But God accommodated himself to those who encountered him then, that, that they would know him. And for us, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who didn't just go into a temple made with hands, but went into the very heavens before the real thing that that temple was meant to depict in some ways, before God himself, and he intercedes on our behalf. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Jesus, you need to know that you are fully and completely forgiven, not because of your righteousness, but because of his righteousness. And that should give us confidence, we're told in the book of Hebrews, to come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. But notice, we're to come before the throne of grace. For what? For forgiveness. In confession. Because of conviction. So repentance is sober. It was sober for them. It's to be sober for us. Because of that conviction and confession. And I think a question we need to ask ourselves is, is, is conf conviction something that we seek? Do you seek to be convicted by God? 
Is that a part of your prayer life? Lord, would you please show me where I'm sinning? Would you please convict me? Would your spirit, through your word, as, as, as I spend time in this regularly, as I'm taking in your scriptures, would you please use this to bring conviction so that I confess, I can confess, and I can repent, and I can turn to you? Because that is a key part of the vibrant, revived Christian walk. Confession is vital. I love 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. What does it say? It says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So for those who are saying, yeah, I, I came to Jesus and now I don't sin anymore. And you're like, yeah, you know what? Um, that was a sin right there. Because you're lying. Because you do. But then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that Greek word for confess is very specific. Uh, it's homo legeo is the word. It means to agree with. In essence, what's happening is you are saying, God, I agree with you. I confess what that was, what I did there, that was a sin. In thought, action, word, deed, whatever it would be, I am not honoring you. Or maybe it's something I didn't do. That was wrong. And so we find that when real repentance comes about, those ingredients of conviction and confession are all part of it. But real repentance isn't only sober. It's also hopeful. Isn't that fascinating? Look at verse 2. So Shechaniah comes up, and and he's one of the sons of Elam, and, and he says... You know, again, he confesses, we've been unfaithful to our God. Uh, And that word faithful, that is terminology that comes from not a mere business arrangement, not a mere political sort of treaty. No, this is unfaithful. That is marital. That is relational. That is personal. We have been unfaithful to God. We've committed spiritual adultery. How? By marrying foreign women. And notice he says, yet there is hope. In the midst of that, there is hope. Why? Why is there hope? Well, because hope can't be fully extinguished in the lives of God's people because hope isn't ultimately in them. Hope is in God. That's why. And so this this idea is, is... Look, yeah, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our confession, in the midst of our failures, there is still hope because God is the God who is not only holy, 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 but he is also compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and in truth. So God, in his richness of holy compassion, provides a way. And we need to see that. So often, you know, I've I've heard messages before, and I know they were well-intentioned and all, but it's like, you need to confess your sin. So now go into that dark closet. Preferably make sure there's no padding under your knees. Kneel down on hard rocks. 
confess. You know, it's like this, you know, and, and, but then that's it. Did you realize the whole reason they're coming by confession out of that conviction is because there is an abiding understanding in their lives that God is the God of holiness and compassion. Implicit in the very act of confessing is an understanding that there is forgiveness available. Not because of what they deserve, but because of who Yahweh really is. So we need to see that as well. Real repentance is certainly sober, but it's also hopeful. And so please hear this message and these truths coming out in light of who God really is. Turn to him. Confess your sin to him. Because God is the one who is eager to forgive his children. And he doesn't forgive in a way that's kind of like, oh, I guess so. There's not a reluctance. Think of what the prophet Isaiah speaks when he says, turn to God. Turn to God in Isaiah 55. He, he calls him out. He says, don't, don't labor for what's not bread. Don't spend your wages on what cannot really satisfy you. Turn to me. Listen to me, he says. And, and, and what, what does he go on? To our God who will abundantly pardon. He doesn't just barely pardon. doesn't kind of pardon. No, he lavishes that. Why? Because of his son Jesus, because of the Messiah. The one who lived that life we could never live, the one who died the death that we deserve. And if you're here today and you've never come to Jesus, you can know that forgiveness. You can have that abundant pardon from God. Confess your sin to him today and receive that gift of forgiveness and the righteousness that is not yours but is Jesus' righteousness. So real repentance, it's sober, it's hopeful. Thirdly, we find it's also urgent. This repentance is urgent. Look at what, what Shechaniah says in verse three. So now, it's right now. He's like, let's not wait. Let's deal with this right now. Let's make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. Now we think of that, we're going, whoa, time out, what? Wait, I, Malachi was writing around the same time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was actually, probably about eh, maybe a decade or two before this. And doesn't Malachi say very clearly uh, that I hate divorce? Doesn't God say that? Yep, sure does. You know why he says that? Because God hates divorce, that's why. So then, how does this work? What is going on here? This sounds really drastic. Maybe even against God's character. And, and, I, and I, this should disturb us. It's supposed to. Like, it's here for a reason. This isn't the, you know, the writer kind of going, oh, whoops, yeah, you're right. Wait, there's this Malachi verse. How does this, oh, I've got to change this. No, this is supposed to cause tension. And so I think there's several things that we need to keep in mind. And I think the context the passage is in helps us a lot wrestle through what does this mean? Um, because uh, the, when, when Malachi wrote decades before, I, God hates divorce, I hate divorce, he was actually addressing this. Men of Judah were divorcing their wives 
as they returned from the exile in order to take on newer models, so to speak, of pagan wives. That's what was happening. And so God's saying, what are you guys doing? You're betraying Yahweh? You're betraying your wife? So here, that problem in some ways is being addressed on the flip side now. It's that same era, that same time frame. So these, these Jewish exile returnees have taken in uh, these, uh, these pagan wives. And, 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 and again, this, there's drastic action called for, and it is drastic. It is certainly drastic. But let's remember some things. The people of Judah, again, they're descendants of who? Abraham. They were to be a holy people. They were to be set apart by God. They were going to be used by God to do what? To bring the Messiah to the world through his descendants. And this intermarrying with pagan wives was putting that in jeopardy. The the people of Israel were on the brink of becoming indistinguishable from the pagan nations around them. And by the way, that was the plan of the enemy the whole time. And you can see that through the Old Testament. This attack, this attack. There's continual attack, not merely on the people of Israel, but on the line of Abraham. There's a reason for that. And God directly warned them about disobedience in this, in this area. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he tells them that I'm going to bring you into the land of the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and, and, and all the others. And... You are to come into the land and you're to drive them out of the land. But then he goes on to say, furthermore, in verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So he warns them about this. And then you're going, well, why is that the case? Well, then he goes on to say why in verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me. They're going to turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So you see the warning here. This is a serious matter. And they already knew about this. This was clear to them. Each person who took a a, a pagan wife, he knew this command and disregarded it anyway. And then... There's further description that God gives. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that's the backdrop to this whole thing. They're not surprised by by the severity of the issue. They were warned against it already. Something else to keep in mind, too. Yes, this is a drastic step, but it seems pretty clear that the foreign wives who actually sought to worship Yahweh, who who renounced the false gods of the surrounding nations, they would be allowed to stay. Now, where do I get that from? Go ahead and turn back to Ezra chapter 6. Look at verse 21. This is that moment that uh, John beautifully preached on, by the way. Thank you, John, for that time. Uh, when When the Passover was reinstituted. And look at what it says in verse 21, the sons of Israel who, who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. You see that? So this wasn't sort of like an ethnic sort of, hey, get out of here. 
you're not our kind kind of thing. No, those who repented, those who turned to Yahweh, those who worshiped him, they were welcome. So it wasn't that. But for those foreign wives who were recalcitrant, really, in their devotion to their pagan gods, they would be uh, removed from the homes. The word used for the wives being taken in isn't the typical word used in Hebrew for marriage. It's kind of interesting. Literally, it was just the word means they took them in. So this might have been just sort of a common law thing. There was no ceremony of any kind. They just were kind of, I don't know, shacking up with pagan ladies. You know, that's what was going on. Um, and, and we also have something else to keep in mind. Not only uh, would those who had turned to Yahweh and wanted to worship him be, be welcome to stay, uh, it very much seems from other, other um, cultural evidence that we have from archaeology and other places uh, that in traditions of that time, when these uh, quote-unquote divorces or the removal of the pagan wives happened, they would have returned to their original families and homes. So this is not the kind of thing where you're where, uh, back in the time of... Abraham and, and let's say Hagar when Hagar was removed. This is not, you know, women and children cast into the wilderness to fend for themselves. No, culturally at this time, things were in place, things happened. Uh, there's several archaeological uh, findings that would indicate that they would go back to their original families. But all that to say, yes, it's messy. It's supposed to be. Sin is messy, isn't it? Sin is messy. It's hard. It's hard to wrestle that through. And yet, this was a urgent moment, an urgent moment to turn, to repent. Um, Because if they did not do that, the very line by which the Messiah was to come, the very grouping of the people of God set apart for God, holy unto the Lord, was was about to blend into the culture around it. And, and, And we need to be careful of the same thing, don't we? You know that we're called to be a holy people for God's own possession? We together, corporately as a church, we're called to that. And you know how often we're just tempted to just kind of blend into the people and the works and the culture around us? I mean, it's it's hard to stand out, isn't it? It's hard. Maybe interpersonally. Maybe maybe you're at work and and you're like, oh man, I I just want people to like me. Is that so wrong? (laughs) Well, it depends. Are you going to compromise your walk with Jesus so people like you? You know, do you want to fit in that bad? Is it that terrifying for you to look different? To act different? To be different? To live in a different way? Um, maybe there's parts of your life where, where you're feeling attracted to what the world would say it's okay. Hey, you don't have to be married in order to uh, have sex with somebody. You just do it. Uh, you, can, you can live with someone who who's, you're not married to or... or or you don't have to honor God with your finances. You do what you want. They're your finances. You now, if you can get away with a few things in business, you know, you're being smart. Cut some corners here and there. You got to make profit. There are all kinds of ways we're tempted to fade into the background of what's around us. And God's calling us here and saying, no, you need to urgently repent. Because if we don't, you know what we're doing? We're actually running against God. And guess what happens when you do that? You lose every time. There was a man driving a car that was suspected to be stolen, and he was injured in a, in a head-on collision. But the authorities say that this 30-year-old Kyle Volz was driving an SUV when he crashed into a police cruiser and then sped off out of North Portland. And uh, eventually, he was spotted driving south on the northbound lanes of Interstate 405. So he's going the wrong way 
on the freeway and he crashed into another vehicle uh, on an overpass. And the driver and passengers, they were, they were seriously injured. Those who he ran into were not injured as much as, as he was. So there's some poetic justice, I guess, in that. Uh, the sheriffs, they weren't injured at all. But he faces several charges, including first-degree assault, felony hit-and-run, reckless driving. And uh, he was in possession of, of a lot of different drugs. But, but here's, here's the thing. You look at that guy and you go, you are insane. You are crazy. What are you doing? I mean, when you just get on the freeway, my understanding is I've seen all the lights look red when you're going the wrong way in the freeway. Because the reflectors, like they're all there to say, dude, wrong way. And yet he's still going. But do you realize if you refuse to repent, you're doing worse. Clinging to your sin and refusing to repent of it is an act of absolute insanity. It will destroy you. It will destroy others. The time to repent is now. And there is hope offered to you. This urgency will always translate into action. And that's what we find in in verses six through eight. Sorry, Ezra gets up and he goes uh, to Jehonahem's, Jehonahem's house. And uh, in verse 6, we find that he's grieving there in private. Like, typically you'd go there and you'd be like, hey, welcome. And he doesn't do that. He's grieving. He's not going to eat. So we find that this display of sorrow was not just a performance. It was sincere. It was, it was his heart before God, for sure. And, and uh, then a proclamation goes out. And essentially they call a massive... Uh, meeting, a national meeting, and say, you got to be here. If you're not going to be here in three days' time, which, by the way, is not hard to do in Israel. It's not that big. Three days' time, get here to the temple, or you're going to lose your property rights. So everybody shows up. Everybody shows up. And then Ezra stands before them all. Look at verse 10. He says, you've been unfaithful and have married foreign wives adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make a confession to the Lord your God, your fathers, to do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And the whole assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right. As you have said, so it's our duty to do. Can you believe that? What's that a sign of? God's grace. I mean, I'm reading this along. I mean, you know, I... You stand up, we need to repent. You need to turn away from the idols and put away foreign wives. And the people responded, get out of here. But they didn't. That's, that's a work of grace. God changing the lives of people. And that's what he's doing amongst us too as we grow and as we repent. I love that, you know, Martin Luther Back in 1517, when he nailed the 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, what, what did it, the first thing he had there was a statement about repentance. <laughs> and what did it say? Repentance is not a one-time act. Repentance is the life, the ongoing life of every believer. We're all living lives of repentance. So uh, the congregation there had, an, had a, 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 a wise input to give Ezra. Uh, they said, hey, rather than taking care of all this right now in this moment, let's take some time. Let's go back to our cities. Let's have the elders and leaders of our various cities examine each individual case. 
and find out what's going on, and that way we can do this in a more organized way. By the way, the text also says it was raining and they wanted to get out of the rain. <laughs> um, which, by the way, I love that. There's another footnote historically that you're like, this, in verse 9, um, it shows it's a historical event. If you were making up this account, you wouldn't add that detail, right? Like, this really happened. It was raining. And so what happens is, uh, verses 16 and 17, the exiles did exactly that. Um, and they, they finished investigating, verse 17, the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So it took about three months for them to go through the investigation. And then the, the whole chapter ends with a list of names. What are the list of names? It's essentially the list of shame of all of those who took foreign wives. And what's fascinating is the way the list is broken down. It's priests, it's temple workers, it's singers, it's common people. It was throughout the entire grouping of exile returnees. All that had come back, someone was represented from some group. And yet, it's about 110 families. Think about this. Just 110 families. There were 30,000 who returned. 110 out of 30,000. It's not a lot, right? But you know what it shows us? Sin needs to be dealt with immediately. Why? Because if 110 just do their thing, the 111th is encouraged to fall into the same trap. Verse 19 kind of summarizes how they all responded. They pledged to put away their wives, being guilty. They offered a ram of the flock for their offense. The ram being offered is very significant. Why? Because ultimately in this entire thing, God himself was the offended party. Wasn't about the people's preference. It was about God. He was offended by their spiritual adultery that led to the exile in the first place. Do you see what's happening? We've just been brought back from exile. How do we get into exile? Well, we disobeyed God. What are you doing now? We're disobeying God. Are you crazy? That's essentially what's going on. And so drastic action was necessary to preserve God's people. Brothers and sisters, we are often much more like the people of God in Ezra than we want to admit. But thankfully, again, those things whereby we're tempted to fit into the world, where we're fit, tempted to just go along with what's around us. Um, that, that does not have to be the last word because Jesus came to offer life, to offer it abundantly so that, that sinners who, who wrestle, sinners who falter, can put their trust in him and be restored to him in joy, can be revived by him. And that's what we find is the, the, the final element of real repentance. It's not just sober and hopeful and urgent and costly. Lastly, it's also fruitful. It's fruitful. What's the outcome of repentance? Well, like we said, it's revival. I mean, that, that's really how it works. We see this pattern not only here, but in many places in Scripture. It starts with conviction. We found that again in the first portion of Ezra 9. It leads to confession. We found that in the latter portion of chapter 9. And that leads to repentance. We found that in chapter 10. And ultimately, all that brings about revival. Now, now we don't see that until Nehemiah, the next book, 
in, in, in chapter 8. But that's where Ezra is there before the people and he's reading the word of the law and they're standing there and it's going from like morning to noon. They're just hungry for the word. They're worshiping God. They're praising him. They're walking in a way that honors him. They're a light and a beacon yet again to the nations around them. There's still going to be struggles historically. Ultimately, the, the kind of way this book ends, really it's pointing us ahead to Jesus. Right? This is like the last historical event until Christ comes in many ways. And so we're, we're kind of, there's an unfinishedness to this that's only resolved in him. And yet, that is the pattern. Repentance awakens revival. Or, you know how my diagrams always get blown up? In, in a sense, this diagram blows up too. Because you could just take revival and put it over the whole thing. <laughs> because when there's conviction, that's a sign of Revival. Where there is confession and repentance, that's also an indicator of revival. So it's, it's messier than this. Is there revival happening in your life personally? Are you confessing sin? Are you convicted more? Are you repenting more? Then yes. Do you want to see more revival in your life? Then seek God for conf- conviction and confession. And uh, what, what I'd, I'd like to even ask us to do right now in this moment now, there's a beautiful passage in, in Psalm 139. And it's, you know, the, the, the whole psalm describes God's omniscience and how he knows everything. You search me, you know me. E- even before I was made, in the midst of, knit together in my mother's womb, you knew my unformed substance. It also describes God's omniscience, how he's everywhere. You can't escape him. You know, where, where I go to the depths of the sea, Lord, you're there. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I go into, you know, the outer reaches of, of the solar system, you're there. No matter where I go, you're there. But the way he concludes it, this is a beautiful thing. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. we're really going to seek revival in our lives and restoration in our lives, this needs to be the prayer of our heart. So I want to encourage you this week. Join me. I'm going to be doing this too. Let's take time this week and pray this very portion of Psalm 139. Notice, search me, O God. Lord, you see everything. You know everything. You know the things in me that I don't even know. Please, Lord, Open up my heart before you. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. You know how we can tell areas of our life and what's happening within us? What is it that makes you scared? What keeps you up at night? What are you going, oh man. God can use that to open up where our trust is, where our hope is, where our security really lies. And then, See if there be any hurtful way in me. If there's something within me, God, that is not right or of you, show me that. And then here's the beautiful element of hope again. Lead me in the everlasting way. Take me to that new place. Take me there, Lord. This is really, in a sense, showing us how to catch that wave of revival how to be a part and aware of what God's doing. I think a lot of times we, we, we want that, but we really wouldn't know what actual biblical revival looked like if it mugged us from behind in a dark alley. Like, we would not get it. This is what it's made of. This is what it looks like. 
And so this week, together, let's pursue that before God. And let's confess our sin. Let's seek conviction. Let's repent. Let's turn away from it. And right now, what I'd like to do, let's just bow together in silence for a moment. Let's bow. And just in light of this psalm, let's just ask God to show us areas of conviction. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would search us, that you would know our hearts, that you would try us, and and that the places in our lives that cause us anxiety would be even used by you to show us where we're resting. Lord, if there are hurtful ways in us, please, by your grace, move in such a way that we can confess those to you, that we can turn away from those things, and that we would be led by you on the everlasting way. We ask, Lord, that you would revive us personally, that you would revive us corporately together, that you would do things above and beyond anything we could ask or think, that you would be glorified. We thank you again for your grace. In Jesus' name. The one who came and lived the life we could never live, who died the death that we are, are deeply deserve, and yet who also gives us hope because of his restoring work and the righteousness that comes by faith. Help us to walk with you and to live in light of the finished work of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Uh, we come to this portion of our service now where uh, we would want to give our offerings to God. And, and in that, um, we want to make sure that we just are prayerful about that. We're thankful that God is the one who's blessed us with everything that we have. We can never outgive God. And there are several ways you can give. You can do it uh, on, uh, online. You can do it uh, through text giving. You can do it with the box that's in the back. Uh, but this is an act of worship. It's just as much an act of worship as singing. It's just as much an act of worship as greeting one another and encouraging one another. And so we would pray that God would be glorified in the generosity of of us together as we give to further the gospel here uh, in our neighborhood, in our community, and around the world. And so uh, let's pray right now and then Andrew lead us in song. Lord, we we come to you and and give you uh, thanks again for your provision of all things. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives that reflect you in generosity that we would be content with what you've given us, that we'd be eager to share what you've given us, that we would be wise as stewards of your resources because all belongs to you. And we pray that these monies that we give uh, would glorify you and would further your work uh, around the world and here that others would know you. We praise you for this in the name again of Jesus, our King. Amen.